sorry, I remember actually seeing the ad, um, there was a monster in our midst or something like that, and kind of thinking, I wonder if that's going to be my story, is that they are they actually going to talk about a person who discovered that their partner is a pedophile? And I remember brushing it off and thinking, no, I'd, I, they probably found out their partner was a murderer or a bank robber. And not that that would be any better, but I just thought this doesn't get talked about. People don't talk about this from my point of view sort of thing. So um, I remember brushing it off and then was horrified and delighted if that would be the word but just all at the same time to finally know that there was someone else who to find that someone was willing to finally speak out and say hey you know what we're here we exist you're not alone welcome to women on the line a national women's current affairs program produced at 3cr community radio in melbourne on wondery country of the kulin nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Aoife Cook. This week, Women on the Line speaks to two women involved with Partnerspeak, an organisation that supports partners and families of people using and making child abuse material. Both guests on this week's show speak to me about the organisation and the power of peer support. You won't hear anything graphic or explicit on this week's Women on the Line. You might want to prepare for what you're going to hear, turn off, or consider listening to our podcast later in private instead. Our first guest, who we'll call Sarah, shares her story as a member of a tight community, a partner, and a mother. You're here because of your Mm ex-partner. How and where did you meet him? Um, so I actually went to high school with him. We'd known each other for a really long time. Um, I think it was about 11 years that I had known him by the time that I ran back into him as an adult. Um, and it was one of those sliding door moments. I still remember really clearly because I was making the decision whether to circle the block one more time to get a park or just park at the supermarket. And had I not parked at the supermarket, my life would have been very, very different. And so you discovered that your ex-partner was um, engaging with child abuse material. How did you start learning what was going on? Um, So after we'd been together for two years, I had discovered that he had been talking to a couple of girls online. Um, Above 18, they they were adults, but I'd had a suspicion since then that possibly he was cheating on me. Um, And so I was kind of watching him like a hawk for the last year of our relationship. Um, And it was only that he was sleeping in the spare room of our house when I had a migraine um, that I'd gone into that bedroom in order to make the bed for him um, and had pulled out a sheet that was really way too big for the bed. And as I was trying to sort of tuck it in, had felt around, um, my hand came across what felt like a magazine I'd pulled that out. It was a, a porno magazine, but you know, it was like a, a Playboy or a Hustler or something that's you know perfectly legal and and you know not sort of abhorrent. And so I do remember having a bit of a giggle to myself and thinking, okay, you know, he said that he he doesn't look at porn. Turns out he's been busted. He does. We'll have words about that later. Um, wanted to know what else there was to find and reached into the bed. And the moment that my hand closed around a what felt like a mobile phone, I kind of knew that I'd busted him with something worse than just porn. Um, 
And so at that point, I had thought that he had been cheating on me. He'd been meeting people online. Um, I still didn't actually know the full story until I think it was about a week after I'd found that phone and I was working through all of the text messages because there was hundreds of text messages, photographs. Um, so you hadn't spoken to him about it at that point? You were trying to figure out what was going on? I'd spoken to him about the cheating, but he at that point he wasn't telling me anything. He wasn't denying it. Um, I didn't give him the phone back because I was determined that I was going to try and figure out everything that he'd been doing now that I'd finally come across the evidence. And it wasn't until, yeah, a couple of days in of kind of working my way through this phone that I found a photograph on it that appeared to be a, quite a young girl and I was able to make out that it was my lounge room um, that the photo was taken in um, and when I confronted him about it I, I don't really know what I was expecting to be honest I think you know I knew it was a young girl but when I say young I was thinking you know she couldn't have been more than 16 years old I had no idea that it was actually the seven-year-old that was across the road okay. um, I, I can't even put words to it it just stopped me in my tracks to be honest and what happened next um, he, I confronted him about it, obviously, and he gave me a story that um, just sounded like a, a lot of rubbish, um, that the girl across the road, my daughter, they were friends, that they'd been playing and they'd been running around and pulling their skirts up and he had said to them that they were misbehaving and if they didn't stop, he'd take a photo of it as evidence to show me, um, which just, it didn't sit right that little girls would be running around and sort of flashing themselves in front of adults or you know in front of a full-grown man particularly if it was just him that was home on his own um and then because it was so much I guess to take in it wasn't until I'd thrown him out so I, I threw him out that day and then I think it was about a week later that it kind of I connected the dots and thought hang on I wasn't even supposed to know about that phone so if the phone was secret it doesn't make any sense that he's taken this photo on a phone that I'm not supposed to know about so yeah it sort of was a lot of the information kind of filtering through and actually making sense to me. Honestly, it wasn't until I think I'd spoken to a few people. So I'd spoken to my older sister and I'd spoken to my close friend at the time and said to them, you know, what do you make of this situation? Um, because it just seemed so implausible. And then, and at the time, as weird as it might sound, it felt almost like if I went to the police, they'd kind of turn around and say, look, I don't know what you're concerned about um but I thought you know what better to go to the police and have them laugh me out of the station than not go and maybe it's something and so it probably wasn't really until the police took it seriously that the you know I, I obviously knew it was serious but I think the full gravity really kind of hit when the police went yep okay this is a problem um can we have access to the computer and and took the rest of the electronics out of the house yeah okay so things got worse than you found out yep yeah, yeah, they definitely did. So, um, you know, one day I had suspicions of a partner that might be cheating and that's something that I felt like I could have dealt with if that was the case to then suddenly everything I thought I knew about this person who, as I said, had been a good friend for such a long time um, was just completely and utterly obliterated. Women on the line. So my ex, he really gaslighted me. Um... He'd gone out of his way to to basically convince me that I was crazy, that I was possessive, that um, I was imagining things. Um, and so by the time it had come to finding that phone, um, I at that point 
was, you know, I was making the bed feeling sorry for him that he was in that room, even though I had a gut feeling that maybe he was in that room because he was going in there to hide things from me. Certainly not what I had discovered that he was hiding, but I thought maybe he'd been going in there to, to cheat um, and to chat to people unobstructed by me. Um, and then felt like I was crazy to even be thinking that because he was such a nice guy. Um, his parents... We'd split up briefly when I had first found out that he was cheating and what I didn't know until after the fact was that I remember his stepdad had made a comment when he'd come to collect his stuff um, about me getting help and getting better and I was really confused as to why I would be needing the help when it was him that was cheating on me and I can still clearly remember his stepdad looking at me with so much pity and and sadness and I sort of at that point I just sort of assumed that he just felt sorry for me I later found out that he had told his parents that um, I used a lot of drugs I had a drug-induced psychosis I was imagining um, a bunch of different things that were happening from him um, cheating with men to cheating with women um, he had told the people that he worked with that I was desperate for him to marry me and for him to adopt my daughter and that I'd threatened that if he was to ever break up with me I would tell everybody that he was a pedophile and he'd been molesting my child. So this all happened before He was found... doing this for about two years. We were together for three years and from what I understand he was doing that, he was saying things like that around the town to friends, family, co-workers for two years before I had even found out what he was doing. So he'd actually well and truly set himself up an alibi because the moment I've turned around and said, oh my God, he's a pedophile, everyone was like, well, we knew she was going to say that. We were told she was going to say that. That's really stunning. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the hardest things to get my head around sometimes is just how someone can have that much forethought to cover their tracks. After contacting the police, Sarah was invited to bring her daughter to a support organisation who assessed her to see if they would find signs of abuse. I asked Sarah whether, at this point, she believed her daughter had been abused. Um, there was no evidence necessarily to point in that direction, apart from a very thin strip of my daughter's shorts being kind of on the edge of that photo. So I think she must have been standing quite close to the camera when the photo was taken. So I knew that she was in the room at the time. Um, but it was only obviously once I'd been told who was in the photo that I actually clicked to what it was that I was looking at, that strip of uniform material um, and then as I said it seemed just logical that if that's who he was and what he was doing that she somehow must have been affected but um, after she'd gone through the assessment um, they had told me that they didn't think that something had happened but that they couldn't rule it out it's just that nothing had actually come up um, during her visits during the assessment and so the next few months were kind of a roller coaster of relief that nothing had happened to her or so I thought at the time um, to sort of confusion to occasionally just kind of just checking in with her to make sure that well definitely always to check in to make sure that she was okay but to check in every now and again to just find out if there was anything that she wanted to tell me if she wanted to make a disclosure um, but that didn't come until 12 months after I had discovered the phone um, which I can remember really clearly because we it was a couple of days before Christmas I think we were watching Carol's in the domain um, and she'd called me aside and asked if she could talk to me and then that's when she had disclosed that something had happened. Um, she'd actually made a disclosure to my sister a few months prior to that so by that stage I was pretty confident something had happened um, and my sister had reacted as most people would sort of with shock and kind of the 
oh my goodness. And that instantly caused my daughter to retreat back into herself and to um, retract the disclosure. So in some ways that was helpful to me because it meant that by the time she disclosed to me, I knew to just be very kind of calm and, and to not really give a reaction. And yeah, from there it sort of, it all picked up in terms of the, once she knew she was safe to make a disclosure, then they started to happen almost nightly, I think for probably a good year or two. It's kind of hard to imagine what being a parent in a situation like that must have felt like. Yeah, they say there's no manual for parenting. There is certainly no manual for parenting through this. It's not something that anybody ever tells you um, how to respond to. And that's really difficult in itself because you don't know at the time that you become, I think it's called the first witness. And so you also have a legal obligation to do certain things a certain way um, in terms of not asking questions that could be considered to be leading questions or to be coaching your child and just a bunch of stuff that nobody talks about. So there is absolutely no rule book for what you do in this situation. They had to be really sure on things like um, dates, times, ages, specific acts um, in order to be able to press the individual charges. So I think she had to make, it was around about five statements all in all, um, which was incredibly distressing and traumatising to her. And particularly because neither of us had realised that I wouldn't be able to be there with her when she was giving her statement. Um, and she wasn't allowed to have anybody in there with her, so not her psychologist or a family member or a friend. So how old was she at this point? Um, from memory, I think she was around about 10 or 11. And I think that that went on for around about a year. I can remember one time when she was quite distressed. So she'd gone in a couple of times, done her best, tried her hardest, just wasn't able to talk about the offences. Um, and I'd had a police officer say to me, you know, you need to stop forcing her to come in and tell this story. She'll come in when she's ready. You need to stop pushing it, which... What was, was that like for you? It was horrendous. It was really terrible because I was doing my level best to just try to parent my daughter the best way that I knew how and not make this the focus of everything, but to be supportive for her um, if she did want to come forward and say something, but also to let her know that, you know, it wasn't her responsibility to save all the other kids. Her big thing was that she didn't want this to happen to anybody else and she felt that she had to protect other children and to see you know a 10 11 year old putting that sort of responsibility onto themselves that was really really difficult so then to have this police officer call me out for doing the very thing that I had tried so hard not to do um you know that really broke me at that point in time Sarah's ex-partner was charged with possession and procurement of child sex abuse materials based on the images found on his phone and his guilty plea but the abuse of her daughter was harder to prove. We got the process as far as a committal hearing, um, but that was, it went to court, I think it was five years after everything had happened, five or seven years now, sorry, I can't remember actually. Um, yeah, it would have been seven years after everything had happened from the time that I had discovered that phone. Um, so it was basically from the first time that my daughter had made her first statement um, while they were investigating. It was yeah five years before we were ever sitting in front of a magistrate. And unfortunately, by that time, we had tried so hard to put it behind us that we couldn't remember a lot of the finer details. So it ended in a no result, which my understanding is that he wasn't guilty or not guilty. Um, the Office of Public Prosecution had decided that they didn't have enough evidence or that we weren't strong enough witnesses my daughter and I to be able to go in front of a jury because there was just so much that we couldn't recall. 
And so he's been charged, but he's never been convicted. We were told so many times that to get it to committal was almost impossible with crimes like this, especially um, a historical crime, because there was no physical evidence. By this point, it was our word against his. Um, so to actually have him have to show up to court was more than what I thought that we would ever actually achieve. But it that really broke my daughter. That sent her so far backwards because she felt like she hadn't been believed. She felt like she'd been shamed. She felt like it was all for nothing. Um, so looking at it from that point of view, you know, it was really, really difficult because she felt like she'd somehow failed. Women on the line. Sarah dealt with all of this without knowing anyone else who'd been through it for nine years. Then one day, she overheard an ad for an interview at 60 Minutes, featuring a woman called Natalie Walker telling her story. So I remember actually seeing the ad, um, there is a monster in our midst or something like that, and kind of thinking, I wonder if that's going to be my story. Is that, they are they actually going to talk about a person who discovered that their partner is a pedophile? And I remember brushing it off and thinking, no, it's, I, they probably found out their partner was a murderer or a bank robber. And not that that would be any better, but I just thought this doesn't get talked about. People don't talk about this from my point of view sort of thing. So um, I remember brushing it off and then I'd happened to catch the, the 60 Minutes interview and was horrified and delighted if that would be the word but just all at the same time to finally know that there was someone else who was I knew that there had to be other people in my shoes but to find that someone was willing to finally speak out and say hey you know what we're here we exist you're not alone um so yeah nine years it took to actually just be like oh my god there's someone else that's willing to talk about this from my point of view. Natalie Walker is the CEO of a small organisation based in Melbourne that supports partners and families of people found creating and using child abuse material. Partnerspeak is an online forum that's populated by women and families all over the world, a phone line that's accessed by people all over Australia, and has individual support meetings and group workshops with people in Victoria who've been affected. I asked peer support manager Flick Gray how Partnerspeak gives support. So we want to be here whenever people want to reach out. And so that might mean years, years down the track, um, if that's where people want to, you know, if they want to reach out. But we do, Natalie definitely has an image of someone who's, the police have just knocked on their door and their world has just, you know, fallen apart or there's kind of this massive um, impact particularly around shame, like to know that you're not alone in that moment, I think could be really transformative for a lot of people so that they don't end up wondering for years what's wrong with them or, you know, kind of dealing with it alone. Also, if people want support going through the legal process or the police process, you know, I've certainly spoken to people who've wondered what's going to happen when the police raid my house because, as Cassie was saying, nobody thinks this is going to happen to them you know, and some people it's completely the whole, every single element of this is um, potentially overwhelming or confusing or hard to get your head around. So just to have someone walking alongside you through that and not necessarily knowing the answers of what's going to happen, but being there with you and sometimes knowing some answers, you know, knowing, yes, will they wear, will they wear their uniforms or not, you know, or what to expect. Um, yeah. yeah. I think there's elements of this experience that we don't 
they're not widely understood yet. And so there's actually a way in which when people are met with someone who's like, I know this is weird, but... And the other person's like, no, that's not weird at all. Like there's that sense of um, being able to connect. And I, for example, will you ever trust a man again? Or the the kind of level of detail. I remember someone telling me about that she just wanted to get the bed out of her house. Like there's ways in which the violation that you feel is the sort of intimacy of it or that people become homeless in ways that are hard to explain, you know, why you're kind of, it, it's not a, it's not an experience that we have a language around yet that's shared. So there's often those micro moments of the the, the tiny little details that someone else can relate to um, that otherwise you feel crazy or alone or somehow it must be a shame on you. And it's very different from speaking to a psychologist or a social worker. Yeah, and I think it's particularly the model of peer support that we use is very much around mutual learning. So there's no sense that one person is the the person who has themselves together and can guide you to become less broken. Um, it's very much sharing experiences and and learning together as well. Like I think about, for example, I've facilitated a peer support group where there was someone in the group who was about 10 years into their experience and someone else who was still in the first year I think it was and there was no sense of oh one day you'll become as far along as me which I think sometimes we can talk about recovery or these kinds of experience your journey as if it's linear and there's a sort of predicting but actually the person who was right in the thick of it I think really helped the other person through some of the stuff because the person who had who'd come into partner speak further along hadn't had those experiences early on of connecting and so there's something about the mutuality of we're all able to contribute. We're all, there's not a sense of hierarchy or of... It's one of the biggest issues that partners and families that you work with are facing is shame and stigma. And I imagine, you know, society putting that on people, it doesn't matter whether it's one year into the experience or 10 years, it's going to be the same level of shame that people are subject to and stigma and you know how how do people experience that and how do people deal with that because we all know kind of intellectually that it's not the partner's fault or anything of the sort but that's still out there yeah yeah I think people can't help but think that I know personally myself before this had happened to me I was convinced that this couldn't happen to me um you know I thought I was doing all the right things I was an incredibly protective mum there was no question that I wasn't doing my job as a parent, but it didn't occur to me that it could happen to me. It just seemed like something that happens to other people and maybe, you know, the mum didn't vet her new boyfriend well enough or, you know, maybe she was just leaving the, the boyfriend at home or the, the husband at home with a child while she was busily doing other things. Um, you know, there was, in my mind, <clears throat> there was always a sense that someone wasn't doing their job properly for this to happen. And so then when it happened to me, it blindsided me because I can clearly remember a friend saying to me before this had happened, you know, everyone says if anyone hurt their child, they'd kill them. But you're the kind of mum that I could imagine chasing someone down and killing them for hurting their child because you're so fiercely protective of her. So I think everybody thinks it can't happen to them. I think also the way that people cope with these experiences, like a lot of people end up, sleeping a lot or not sleeping or drinking or whatever it is that you do to get through difficult times. And I think culturally we can shame people for how we get through distressing times. And Partner Speaks very, very clear that these experiences can be incredibly traumatic. 
there was a peer support group that we had that I it is so strong in my mind that at the start of the group there was a couple of people who weren't sure that they'd be able to keep attending the group like that was so raw that it actually felt perhaps too big a step and I've certainly heard professionals talk about oh maybe you're not ready to deal with this but there was something about the camaraderie that by the end people were laughing and literally there was a couple of them dancing down the street and it was a sense of having found other people who get it and not that your whole life's changed but that something fundamentally has changed. You don't feel like you are completely alone in this experience and it's not an intellectual experience. It's a full-bodied kind of sense of, ah, oh, I'm not alone. Women's on a line. Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> we recognise that people make decisions for really complex reasons and we can't know what's in someone else's best interests. So, for example, I think about if people are economically dependent on this other person, who are we to say that they have to leave that person in any particular way? There's also... Um, Certainly people in our community who have religious beliefs around staying with a partner. There's people who firmly believe that the person has made a mistake and is willing to take responsibility for it and can change. There are people who think they could not possibly get their head around staying with someone. You know, it's it's a, a whole mix of different beliefs. I mean, this cuts across socioeconomics, political views. It it This can happen to anyone yeah, but it's not, of course, a politically neutral organisation. You do recognise um, this issue as a gendered problem. Absolutely that it's gendered. It's predominantly men and far, far more gendered in that sense than contact offences. So it's a very, very, very small percentage of women offending with child abuse materials. But absolutely, yeah, it cuts across. And so the majority of the people you work with are women and, and family members? With family members, we've supported quite a lot of male family members. Um, definitely there's a lot of female partners that we've supported, but we recognise that this is likely to affect gay-male relationships as well. Now that Sarah has met many other women in her situation that understand what she's been through, I asked her for advice on what people might do if someone tells them they've experienced something similar. The key thing is asking what's happened, not what's wrong, you know, what's wrong with that person, um, and just letting them tell their story and just being someone who can actually say from personal experience, there's nothing wrong with you, you're not at fault. Um, the, the call I did have the other day, I think there were three instances where this woman had mentioned that she felt so stupid and it felt purposeful to be able to say to her, actually, I know exactly how you feel and know you're not stupid. You know, what you're feeling is a normal reaction to an abnormal set of circumstances. Um, so mostly just listening and just being there for someone and just kind of reminding them that we're human and... and that they're not alone in this. Thank you to Flick Gray of Partnerspeak and to Sarah for sharing her story. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs programme made for community radio. 
It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation.